Listener Production. Sharon Salzberg is a meditation pioneer, world-renowned Buddhist teacher and New York Times best-selling author. She is one of the first to bring mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation to mainstream American culture over 45 years ago. Sharon defines quiet as presence, not an absence of sound, but an absence of noise. She explores the art of stillness and shares what she and others are learning about the space between thoughts and how our brains take care of our bodies. What follows is a conversation about battling your inner demons, being reborn in the same life, and how in stillness the true presence of our nature is revealed. I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. You know, that's a different way of living. You think about an ordinary conversation with a stranger. We're completely self-preoccupied. And we're in conversation and we're thinking, what do they think about me? Do they like me? We're not taking them in. We're not feeling them. We're not seeing them. It's a pretty lonely way of living. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Sharon is the author of many books, including her newest book, Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. In its essence, this conversation highlights the essential elements needed to recover from crisis, build greater emotional intelligence, and how to cultivate the inner awareness and strength needed to create a positive impact in our lives and the world around us. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did recording it. There is so much to walk away with and put immediately into practice. Sharon, you say freedom is not about transcending pain. What is freedom and how do we get there? Well, um, the reason I say things like that is because I've seen people, what in my mind is like needlessly punish themselves because they still have painful things arise. And uh, one of my sayings is something's just hurt. Hmm. It's not your fault. It's not like you have the wrong attitude. It's not like your thinking is askew. Something's just hurt. But what we don't need is what I would call extra suffering, where we feel the pain and we also feel isolation. Like I'm the only one who ever feels this. So we feel the pain. And we feel all that blame and shame and so on, which is really something extra. And so I would interpret freedom more as a different way of relating, not only to pain, but also to pleasure and to neutrality, because we can have a pretty distorted relationship to everything. Mm. You know, I know plenty of people, you might as well, you know, who don't really take in much joy because they don't feel they deserve it or they feel too guilty or there's too much suffering in the world or, or sometimes we're just so distracted, we hardly even notice it, Mm. you know, and I was fascinated from the beginning of my meditation practice with what I'd call what is called neutral experience, not very pleasant, not very unpleasant and just kind of eh, routine, repetitive, 
where we're half asleep, we're numb. We're kind of waiting for something more exciting to happen. So we can have a distorted relationship to everything. And so we're bound. And yet we also can have a, you could say, purified relationship to everything. And we can be free even in the midst of whatever's going on. I feel like freedom is the holy grail almost. You know, when we talk about wealth and things like that, it's what we actually want is freedom. We want money because we want the freedom to be able to do whatever we want. We don't want to be in the shackles of sometimes like the constraints of it could be a job or just life in general if it's holding us back from doing whatever it is that we want to do. If someone is listening now and they feel like they are in those shackles, what's a good way to be able to move through that? Well, uh, you know, in sort of the world of mindfulness, it would be being able to see the distinction between what's actually happening and what we may be adding on to it just through force of habit. And once we can see that distinction, then we can return to what's actually happening more and more. Let go of the hold of the thoughts and emotions that are shackling us, in fact. As one of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher, Sonny Rinpoche would say, it's not the thoughts that are the problem, it's the glue. You know, so it's not the thought that's the problem. It's the way we hold it. We take it to heart. We build a future around it. It's the only thing I'll ever feel. Um, it's permanent. It's solid. Uh, it's unrelenting. There's no space there. You know, we add a lot to any experience, in this case, an experience of difficulty. And if we can just see the distinction between the actual experience and the add-ons, uh, then we have a path. Hmm you know, letting go gently, maybe over and over again of the add-ons, returning to what's actually happening, learning to be kinder to ourselves in the face of whatever's happening, having some compassion for ourselves. And over time, you really do see an enormous difference. Buddhism is a big part of your life. You are a great Buddhist teacher. How did those practices become important to you? Well, basically, they're what I have practiced. You know, like I went to India when I was 18, I was seeking a meditation teacher. That's why I went, um, although I went through a school project and I felt it had it should be Buddhist. You know, I didn't really understand anything. I didn't know what Buddhist was, basically. But I had uh, done a course in Asian philosophy in college uh, and there was something about the Buddha as a, a representative of somebody who can acknowledge suffering in the world that was usually important to me. And... Uh, you know, having had, as many people do, a kind of chaotic, difficult childhood, when I heard the Buddha wrote, or he didn't write, when he spoke about suffering, um, that wasn't a depressing message for me. That was very reassuring. It was as though somebody, for the first time, really, for me, was saying, oh, you belong, you're not so weird. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is a part of life, and you are a part of life, and uh, so when I went to India, it was with the thought, I'm going to find a Buddhist meditation teacher. And I have practiced within different schools within Buddhism and Southern schools and Northern schools and with different teachers. And I've practiced kind of for the joy of it, you know, and other, other uh, systems, not Buddhism, but um, the foundation of my meditation, my introspection, basically has always been within, within that context. Unfortunately for me, my first teacher was S.N. Goenka, and that was uh, that retreat began January 7th, 1971. 
And the first night of my first retreat, Goenka said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. Hmm. So anyone is welcome here. This is no way about becoming a Buddhist or rejecting anything else. It's not about a belief system. It's about the power of your own awareness and what you can discover. So um, I didn't sort of engage in internalized philosophical debate, trying to decide which was better, which was right. Uh, uh, it sort of didn't matter what languaging you used and what, and what, um, symbols you used or ways of expression you used. And that became really the foundation of my, my sense of things. What did the Buddha teach about suffering? Uh, a few things. One is that suffering is inevitable. It's a part of life. Mm. Um, and again, you know, uh, even as people, and I think correctly seek empowerment over the, you know, over some circumstances and, and want to understand the power of one's mind, that can also go a little far into thinking if I only had perfect thinking, nothing would ever feel bad, you know, but loss feels bad and change sometimes feels bad, but it doesn't have to be bad in the way we make it. So mm. like I'm a terrible person and that's why this is happening or spent all that money in therapy. Why is this happening? I did wrong, you know, or um, it's not that way. Uh, and so being able to understand this is a natural part of life, we can have compassion for ourselves. We can have compassion for others. Compassion is not something passive or inert, like some sickly sweet feeling, you know, and it's ineffective and um, it's really a power. It's a source of power. You can have compassion for somebody, for example, and say, no, have a boundary, be fierce, be intense. Uh, it isn't all being like meek and sweet and, and mild, but all that's the fruit of exploration. You know, it's seeing for oneself, really, really paying attention. So suffering is a part of life. You can respond differently to it. That difference will make for a very different kind of life if you are developing compassion rather than rancor and bitterness and so on. I feel like that a lot of suffering comes from the mind and mm -hmm. our interpretation of events or people or circumstances. And I wonder, how do we allow things to just be? You know, I remember Eckhart Tolle said a beautiful story. He said he met some woman one day and a staff member was with him. And then the woman said something to him, talked to him for a little bit and walked away. And the staff member started kind of saying like, oh, she's this and she's got this and blah, 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 just kind of analysing the woman. And Eckhart's like, it is what it is. It's gone. She came, she spoke, she's gone. And there was no analysing of the situation. It just was. I think about that often because I think if we could all walk through life just allowing things to be, I think that would alleviate a lot of suffering. But I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, wisdom helps, insight helps, and, and it often starts with seeing the problem. Mm. So it would be almost like, like, here's a story I often tell. I was teaching with my colleague, Joseph Goldstein, somewhere, and he and I were having a cup of tea in the kitchen of that place. When this man came into the kitchen in some distress and he said to Joseph, I just had this really terrible experience. And Joseph said, well, what happened? And he said, well, I was meditating and I saw what an incredibly, I, I felt all this tension in my jaw. 
And I saw what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, I've never been able to get close to people. It's never going to change. Joseph said to him, as you might imagine, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he went on with a very elaborate story about forevermore and the rest of his life and who he really was. And, and it was really interesting for me, like sitting there watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Joseph said something to him like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? Hmm. It's painful enough to feel all of the tension in your jaw. But on top of that, now you're going to be alone for the rest of your life. You've added so many things. So sometimes in describing mindfulness, we say, look for the add-ons. That's where the interpretation will be. That's where the pushing away will be. That's where the shame will be. That's where the isolation will be. You know, the reason I, I probably belabor the point that something's just hurt is because I've also seen people feel really bad about having tension in their jaw. They think everything should be lovely. If I were evolved as a, as a being, you know, it would all be so sweet, you know, and that's not necessarily true. Life can be really hard in a lot of ways, but we really do not need that extra suffering. And so the first thing mindfulness would encourage us, and it is an encouragement, it's not like a source of judgment, is like, can you spot the add-on? Can you see the assumption that you're making? Can you see the projection into the future that you're making? Can you see the thought as a thought more and more? And then... From there, you know, we practice letting go. We practice letting go all the time. Mm. Uh, very gently, not because you've done something wrong or not because it's bad, you know, but it's just like, I don't need this. I've been down this road 70 billion times, you know, mm. like, let me just let go and come back to what I'm experiencing. And, and that's actually how we train. How is one able to be mindful if they're in pain? And that might not just be physical pain, but if they're grieving or if they're in a lot of pain to do with an emotional thing that has occurred. This too, it's almost a kind of training. And I say that not because it's cold, you know, or, mm -hmm. or mechanical, but it's not easy. And most of us, not all of us, because people have very different families and backgrounds and so on, but most of us probably were not taught that skill as children, you know, and young adults. Like this is how you sit with an uncomfortable feeling, with a painful feeling without creating an entire solid future out of it. This is how you sit with a painful feeling when you don't know what to do to help somebody else. It's almost a kind of skill to be able to be aware with more balance without like throwing yourself into the situation and without like being so afraid of it. And the way we do that is one moment at a time. Hmm. You know, once you are trying to solve the entirety of your issue, it's too much, you know. Like I was once teaching uh, here in Barry, the Insight Meditation Society next door to where I am right now. Uh, and we, you know, this is before we closed down, you know, only then to reopen, but before COVID. And so uh, we always have taught in teams. And so I was sitting one night listening to my colleague, this, in this case, this woman named Susan, give the evening discourse. And uh, Susan had started her own meditation practice maybe 15 years earlier, 20 years earlier. And I had been one of the teachers in her first retreat. So I'm just sitting there and Susan's talking and she said, I did a retreat here, my first retreat. And I was so restless. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I just wanted to jump out of my skin. So I went to see Sharon and I said to her, has anyone ever died of restlessness from <laughs> meditating? So of course I was really interested. I'm sitting there thinking, what did I say 20 years ago? And she went on to say, and Sharon said, 
not from just one moment at a time of it. And I thought that was a great answer, you know, like. Because we don't just say, okay, right now, how am I going to be with the restlessness? And right now, am I going to be with the restlessness? We pile it together. You know, we compile it. Uh, it seems so solid. It seems so overwhelming. It's going to last forever. What am I going to do about it in three years? You know, what am I going to do about it in five years? Uh, it's way too much. So we remind ourselves one moment, this moment. Hmm. How am I going to be with it in this moment and this moment? And then everything changes. We brought this Burmese meditation teacher named Saida Upandita over from Burma to the Insight Meditation Society in 1984. Uh, and we had heard he was a very great teacher. We'd never met him before. And he was a really great teacher. And he also was tough and demanding and fierce, fierce, fierce as a teacher. So there were a couple of things about that retreat. One was I had had a friend who had died very uh, recent to the retreat. And I was thinking about him a lot. Now, we were also seeing Saida Upandita six days a week for these very short meetings just to describe our meditation practice and get some feedback each each morning. So um, I didn't know him. You know, I had never met him. He was a monk, you know, and I was very reluctant to tell him, you know, how deeply sad I was about my friend. And finally, but like six days a week, you finally have to describe mm. what's going on. So. I told him my friend died and I was thinking about him a lot. So he said, are you very sad? And I said, yes. And then he said, are you crying? And I thought, oh no, I'm going to give him the wrong answer. You know, I helped start this place. What's he going to think of me? And so I said to him, I'm not crying very much. <laughs> and he kind of shook his head, looked at me and he said, every time you cry, you should cry your heart out. Mm-hmm. That way you'll get the best release. And I could not have been more shocked. Wow. Except there was another, the same course Someone asked him in the meditation hall, how long should I pay attention to physical pain before I move my attention to something that's easier to be with, like to get a little respite, you know, maybe listen to sound or do loving kindness or something or someplace in your body that's not hurting. And we consider this a very interesting question because physical pain is the model for emotional pain. You know, that's where we learn the skill. Yeah. And then we we bring it there. So I thought given his personality, Upandita was going to say, you should be with the pain until you fall over. And much to my surprise, he said, don't be with it for very long. He said, be with the pain, move your attention, something that's easier to be with. Hmm. Go back to the pain, maybe go back to something that's easier to be with. He said, it's not wrong to just be with the pain and be with the pain and be with the pain, but you'll likely get exhausted. Hmm. So why not build in balance all along the way, you know, and just give yourself a break now and then realize, okay, I need to, you know, look at the sunset, look at a tree, Mm. make a nice meal, whatever it is, and allow yourself that. Because then when you do go back and you're with the pain, you'll have more of a sense of inner resource. You'll have more strength. There's a beautiful quote that the Buddha says, if you truly loved yourself, you would never harm another. And I just think that rings so true. And I wonder if you could tell us why that is so pivotal. Well, I mean, sometimes in a... um, pretty radical view of ethics or morality. We think not about being uptight, but we think about compassion for others. But really, there's also a way of honoring living with integrity because of compassion for ourselves. Um, And that comes back to that saying in a few different ways. One is to harm someone else is to harm ourselves. Mm. And people who do introspective work of any kind, whether it's meditation or journaling or psychotherapy or anything, 
see that, you know, when you say something that's really hurtful to somebody, it doesn't disappear. It's like, you know, once you somehow reach that level, it's there. Mm. And you think, wow, I said that. Or, or if you are in the habit of, of being deceitful in some way and you sit down just to be present with yourself and suddenly you're thinking, look at all this fear. Like, did I lie to enough people? And maybe I have to tell another line. Maybe I should give a call and, you know, tell a lie. And just like, what a burden, you know? And mm. and you realize, oh, that is such a cluttered, like overwrought way of living. I don't really want that out of love for myself. So that's part of it. Part of it is um, so many times when we are reckless, when we're hurtful, or we hold back in a way which would have been good to contribute, but we're, mm. we're withdrawn. There are lots of ways of being hurtful. Um it's because we didn't love ourselves enough. Hmm. You know, we didn't give someone that gift because we thought, oh, I, I never give enough. You know, I, I'm not contributing enough, so I won't contribute anything. And so that's tied together in that way. And then I also think, for me, I think the human potential each of us has, or the potential each of us has as a human being, just living a life, you know, is so huge. Hmm. And you see the temptation to compromise and to think we are capable of so little, just like getting by and surviving. But, you know, the fact that we can actually make a difference in someone's day or we can be really a lot happier, a lot happier than we are. And it doesn't really ring true to us. And so we have very, very diminished kind of blunted imagination about what our life can look like. And so, you know, stepping on the next person to get ahead is about as big a goal as we have. And, and it's really such a mark of not loving ourselves to, to have such a small kind of aspiration. Do the Buddhist teachings talk much about, you know, the idea of the law of reciprocity or karma, what you put out, you receive? Well, yes, they talk a lot about it, but it's also considered kind of mysterious. Yeah. In that the Buddha said you can't really understand it exactly in a linear way, you know, to say like, I killed a lot of mosquitoes in a previous life. Therefore I have knee pain, you know, through this life. <laughs> yes. uh, it's so much vaster and bigger. And, and that I think is hard for people to get because it can also degenerate into a kind of victim blaming. And, and it's confusing, of course, like you look at a baby, you know, and you think, how can you say that it was their actions? And, that brought about this terrible abuse in their life. And and you don't ever want to go there, you know? Mm. Um, so, you know, the the ways it can be useful are, I think, feeling that actions are consequential. And we see that because you can see that you're haunted by it all these years later. Mm. Who would have guessed? Once you're sensitive enough, once you're aware enough. And you also see there are ways that people's minds can create a circumstance as though they were creating a world, creating a reality. So like a, a common example would be somebody who's like a miser who has a ton of money and goods and, you know, luxury, but inside feels like they never have anything. Mm. They don't have enough. And so they're not generous. They don't enjoy the money. They don't go, you know, I'm speaking as I, don't, I haven't traveled in a few years now, but someone who's always traveling, you know, like, you know, the people who insisted, well, I'm not going to upgrade myself because I'm like, I think, really? You know, like, yeah. You know, and so they didn't enjoy anything. They didn't spend, they didn't give. And so they're living as though they're paupers, as though they have absolutely nothing. Hmm. Whereas they have a lot. And so they have created a world. 
out of that fear, out of that power of mind that's weird, you know. Do you think that social connection is important for, you know, a happy life? Because we know that it's definitely not like a numbers game and it's not about how many people that you're friends with because that you can be friends with a lot of people and can be extremely unfulfilling if they're not on the same wavelength. I'd love you to talk to us about the importance of social connection. Well, it seems to be an important thing and it's very, um, you know, much in the research and so on. And uh, even before the pandemic where a lot of connections were kind of ripped asunder. Uh, I used to read the studies and, and see like with all these different clinical conditions, social connection was mentioned as a kind of part of healing, an important part of healing modalities. And and I felt too that, you know, just as you said, that it couldn't really be a numbers game, that it couldn't just be like, I only have three friends. I need eight at least, you know, <laughs> better make some friends, but must be a kind of internal sense that one can carry because I know, and, and probably we all know introverts, for example, who would not want to think I have to add five more friends mm. that I have to talk to and, you know, go out to events with. But that internal sense of caring, of belonging, of inclusion, not feeling, um, I once heard a, a quotation, maybe from the Dalai Lama, um, uh, quoting a Chinese poem, saying something like, um, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. You know, that's a different way of living. You think about um, an ordinary conversation with a stranger. We were completely self-preoccupied and we're in conversation and we're thinking, what do they think about me? Yeah. Do they like me? We're not taking them in. We're not feeling them. We're not seeing them. It's a pretty lonely way of living. It's interesting you say that. I've been thinking a lot about listening recently and you know how powerful that is and how it seems basic to most people. We have ears, we listen but like truly listening and, you know, having a conversation with someone and not thinking about what you're going to say next rather than listening to the person, not butting in, giving them eye contact, all those things, again, that seems so simple. And on the weekend I bumped into someone and she was asking me questions about something and she wasn't looking at me. She was looking over my shoulder the whole time and I felt to myself like it's like I'm talking to a wall here. And it started making me feel really uncomfortable and then out of nowhere she goes, you know, I... I was just in the south of France for two weeks and I'm thinking to myself, all you've wanted to tell me throughout this conversation is that. Good on her. That's lovely. How beautiful for her. But it really highlighted the fact that a lot of us do not listen and it can be so rude as far as etiquette's concerned. If you want to form those social connections with someone, it's such an important thing to do is to just listen to the person. You don't even have to say that much back to them, but like actually listen. And I wonder what kind of work you've done with that. Well, I mean, the internal work of mindfulness is a lot like that, you Mm. know, because we're encouraged not to like immediately react and take action, you know, and Some people don't trust that. They think, well, that means you're never going to take action. You're just going to sit there. And I can remember way back in my early training, which was in India, uh, we were living in in this place called the Burmese Vihara. Um, It's like a Burmese temple, which was some little distance outside the town of Gaya, which is the town that's grown up around the descendants of the tree. They say the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. So it's Mm. a very holy town. And it was a very tiny little place then. It was just like the tree and a temple and a, I think a Chinese temple and a one Tibetan temple and a couple of chai shops. You know, now it's I, I hear bigger, but um, 
And right around the center of the town, there was a farmer who owned some lands and he had an elephant. And so occasionally, if you were walking from where the Burmese Vihara was into the center of town, you'd come upon the elephant. And so I remember once somebody asking my teacher, Menindra, like if I were walking down the road and I see the elephant coming in the other direction toward me, do I get out of the way or do I simply notice mindfully that there's an elephant coming toward you, toward me? And he said, get out of the way, you know, like, just like get out of the way. And so it's not like you, you're going to be inert, you know, and never do anything, but it's sort of immediate, hasty, reactive mode doesn't mm. bode well for our happiness. Mm. And so um, we need a little space to really take in what's going on. And that's the whole mindfulness training. And so, it can translate well into being able to listen to others, but we have to sort of remember that. Yes, yes. What is enlightenment to you, Sharon? Like, what is that? Well, I probably uh, revert back to kind of classical teaching. Like, um, I think the, uh, the great source of, you could say, extra suffering is being lost in greed, hatred, and delusion. Mm. Um, greed in the sense of holding on and craving like endless craving, hatred in all kinds of different ways, including self-hatred, which would be a kind of shame, you know. And delusion in, in that sense would be uh, being spaced out, being numb, being distant from one's experience, you know. So I would see enlightenment as the eradication of greed, hatred, and delusion. Mm. So it's kind of, in my mind, it's a gradual state because we're slowly eroding the tendency to get lost in greed, hatred, and delusion all along. And uh, some of my teachers would say something like a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom or enlightenment because in those moments, we're not like entangled or overcome by greed, hatred, and delusion. And then we get lost again because it's how things are. And then we kind of come back, you know. And, mm. um, so I see it a lot in that light. It's like a, a mind that's free. It's so interesting that you say about greed, because I don't think I've spoken so much about that before, but it is an interesting topic. The wanting the more, more, more. I suppose that does create a lot of suffering in a way, doesn't it? Well, it creates a lot of suffering. It creates a lot of um, confusion. It creates a lot of compromise. It's like I, I was once teaching in New York City at this place called Tibet House, mm. um, uh, which is actually an art gallery. It's more like an art gallery and then they have events you know, like teachings and so on. So I taught many classes there and um, there were different exhibits around all the walls, you know, hanging. And so I gave once an example of an out loud demonstration of a, greed, a greedy mind, you know, and I'd say I was sitting up on the stage and I said, well, I see, you know, that um, wall hanging over there, Tibetan Tonka wall hanging. Can't see the price, but I see the wall hanging. And so I go into this whole thing, like, I really want that. Okay, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to own it. And then I remembered that, in truth, I was living in New York City in a tiny little sublet apartment, and I was not allowed to hang anything on the walls. So then I thought, I've got to move. I've got to get another apartment so I can, ha I can buy the wall hanging and I can hang it. You know, and I need special lights, and I need to, you know, emphasize it this way, and I need to highlight that. And, but while I'm at it, I might as well get a bigger apartment because this apartment is, like, so tiny. And then I realized that in order to afford a yet bigger apartment in New York City, I was never going to be able to be in New York City. I was always going to have to travel and teach and lecture and do all these things all around the, really the world. And so I realized, okay, I will never be in New York. I'll never see my wall hanging, but I'll own it. 
You know, wow. so that's the kind of mind state we get into. We don't think, what am I giving up mm. in order to have this experience? Is it actually what I want to do is give this up? Who am I hurting? Mm. You know, there's no end of stories about people who ruin their relationships because of ambition of some kind. Mm. You know, so in all cases, it's like if we could just step back and take a look. We can see for ourselves where the greatest happiness lies. Mm. And then we have a path. I want to talk about my favourite practice, which is one of yours too, meditation. It's changed my life in more ways than anyone could ever know. How has meditation guided your path? Well, it's a little bit of a hard question for me because I started when I was 18 Mm. and I am far from there now. (laughs) You know, so it's been my whole life and a long, you know, relatively longish one um, because it is far from 18. So, you know, it's so different now and... um, I'd been through a lot by the time I was 18. I had a lot of tragedy in my childhood. I can't even imagine what my life would be like without the meditation. It gave me so much. It gave me uh, a way of being with my feelings. Mm. Uh, It gave me a way of finding balance. You know, so I was not so much um, driven by what had had been my conditioning. Um, It gave me a lot of fun, you know, (laughs) ways of experimenting like, I mean, it, it would be a, a really easy example. Like one of the meditations or reflections that's encouraged is often a reflection on gratitude. You know, like write down three things by the end of the day that you're grateful for from the day. And I always say it doesn't have to be something magnificent. You know, it could be that you're breathing. It's pretty great. And I also always say, as is true, that doesn't come naturally to me. Like my personal conditioning, my cultural conditioning is such that I'm so much more likely to come to the end of the day and think about what I can complain about, what went wrong and how I didn't show up the way I'd Mm. hoped and that other person didn't either. In my traveling days, it was always an airline, you know, but if I ask myself in effect, anything else happened today, anything good, then I have through the meditation trained enough flexibility of awareness and the ability to let go gently and not judge myself what I just experienced, but say, what else happened today? And make that experiment like, oh, what what could happen today? Mm. So I think all those things are attributes the meditation gave me, the ability to begin again, to forgive myself, to experiment, to step into new terrain, all of it. Begin again is so important. Every day is a new day to begin again. The past is the past and, you know, it's like that whole idea of the sun rising and just starting over again and If everyone just knows that, I think it would give them so much peace. Ram Dass was a very good friend of yours and one of the world's greatest spiritual teachers. He sadly passed away a few years ago. And I wonder what memories that you have of Ram Dass and what he taught you. Uh, He was a great friend and he was at my very first meditation retreat as a student. Um, He'd already been to... India, he already was Ram Dass. He'd been fired from Harvard for, you know, psychedelics. And uh, he'd come back to India to search for his guru. And there were, these were the days, you know, this is before cell phones. This is before the internet. And so it's quite a magical thing. Like, where's the guru? You know, mm-hmm. everything was like word of mouth. Well, somebody said he was spotted in Calcutta, you know. And, so, uh, and there were a number of people at that retreat. We were going, was the teacher. 
who were there because they'd heard Ramdas on the radio in America or they visited his father's farm in New Hampshire and and they too wanted to find the guru, you know, that guru running Prolly Baba. And uh so he's been there throughout my whole kind of spiritual life. And um we were in Burma together when he his stepmother got very ill and he had to leave and he left me like his stash of like M and M's and you know, coffee or whatever. And I just remember he was always the first in, in this sort of pioneering way, you know, the first person I knew working with prisoners, the first person I knew working with dying people. Mm. And he had a um, commitment, I would say, to really trying to help that was pretty unparalleled. You know, we were at his house once in California before he had the stroke. Uh, I'll tell you the second part in a moment, but this is before he had the stroke and he was saying, this is like a small group of us, you know, we've been friends for a long time. He said, I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm not going to deal with anybody. You know, we're just here together. and We'll have a good time. And then the phone rang and somebody was leaving him a message. And it was all about how the emotional pain that they were in. And they just wanted to die. And he picked up that phone so fast and talked to them. So his imbalance, you might say, was that he was a much better giver than receiver. Mm. You know, he wanted to be the helper. He wanted to take care of people. And he did in the most amazing way. But it was very hard for him to receive. And mm. it was only after the stroke that he started talking about that. And I was sitting once, and he'd moved to Maui, and he was, we were teaching these retreats together. And I was sitting in the back, he was speaking, and uh, he said that the hardest thing about the stroke of all was having to receive help. Mm. And that his whole life he dedicated to being the giver. And he said harder than physical pain, harder than living in a wheelchair, harder than the differences in his speech, because they were quite considerable, was having to receive help. He said it was the hardest and the most liberating. And then he said, one of my most famous books was called, How Can I Help? Now I want to write a book called, How Can You Help Me? <laughs> you know, and that was a really, really huge teaching from him. I remember in the movie made about him, he says, the stroke brought me inward. And it's so, so beautiful. He said, I wouldn't wish the stroke on anyone, but I wish you the grace. And I just think, oh, this is so beautiful to look at a situation like that, that he was in. And he just, with all those physical ailments, which as you mentioned were that he was in a wheelchair, he couldn't talk properly, couldn't use his, one of his hands properly, like there was a lot of stuff. Yet he still found that beautiful grace within himself. Like he knew that yeah. that brought him inward and he just looked, so happy. There is that sort of enlightenment right there. We talk a lot about letting go. They talk a lot about that in Buddhism and like letting go of attachments and attachments are suffering and all that kind of stuff. I know that each time that we let go, we disentangle ourselves from our expectations and you begin to experience things as they are. But do you have some wisdom that you could share on the art of kind of letting go? Well, for me, you know, a lot of in a lot of ways, it goes back to being able to begin again. Yeah. Because one of the great blockages of letting go, and if you just look at like a meditation exercise as one example, because um, it sort of displays the whole thing, you know, like you sit down with the intention of resting your attention on the sensation of the breath, let's say, or you're doing a mantra, but let's say the breath. And 
you know, that was the first meditation instruction I ever got was sit down and feel your breath. And as you know, I say very often, my first reaction was, well, that's stupid. <laughs> you know, where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic instruction that's going to wipe out all my suffering? I came all the way to India. And then I thought, how hard can this be? You know, like, what will it be like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind wanders into my absolute shock? It was like one breath or sometimes two breaths and I'd be gone and I'd be way gone. And I heard over and over again, but didn't believe it's okay. Just gently let go and start over. We're more interested in the recovery than anything. We're interested in the coming back. We're interested in letting go more and more gently, coming back with more and more kindness towards yourself. It's letting go and beginning again, letting go and beginning again. It took me a really long time to believe that one. But it's actually true, because what do we usually do? Or what are we tempted to do? You sit down, you feel a couple of breaths, your mind starts thinking about your vacation. Mm. And you realize it and you freak out. I can't believe I'm thinking. No one else in this room or the Zoom or whatever is thinking. I'm the only one. They're so brilliant. They're so enlightened. They're so amazing. They're not thinking. I'm thinking. And then you go on. Well, maybe they are thinking, but they're thinking beautiful thoughts. They're thinking thoughts of blessing for all beings everywhere. They're so spiritual. I'm the only one who's thinking these stupid, stupid thoughts. And so if you jump on that train, not only are you extending the period of distraction, sometimes considerably, but you're so tired. Mm-hmm. We feel so demoralized, so exhausted that we don't kind of have the wherewithal to pick up and start over. But starting over is the only thing that matters. You know, and so you begin to see like, that's not skillful. It's not helpful. I'm going to really practice letting go and beginning again. And, and that seems to me to be kind of the essential link, mm. you know, throughout, throughout this What's the best advice, Sharon, that you have ever been given? Uh, The best meditation advice I've ever been given was um, something that, as I look back, I heard again and again and again and again, because obviously I wasn't taking it in. (laughs) And and there was some variation on uh, the way I've been describing mindfulness because I was very judgmental. And so... um, there's some variation on what arises in your experience is not as important as how you relate to it, mm. you know, because uh, say anger would come up in my meditation. I'd be so freaked out. I can't believe I'm angry. I'm like the worst person that ever lived. It's so terrible, you know, like, and of course later with much more experience, it was like, oh yeah, there's anger, you know? Mm. And so uh, I can think of so many teachers saying something like, like my teacher Menindra again said something like one year, why are you so upset about that thought that's come up in your mind? Did you invite it? Did you say at 6.15, I'd like to be filled with self-hatred, please? No. When conditions come together for a thought to arise, it will arise. Mm. How you are with it is much more important than the fact that it appeared. So I, I heard that year after year after year after year. It's important. You know, uh, that was usually important. And probably the biggest life advice, the most important life advice I've ever gotten was... Uh, my teacher, Deepama, a woman named Deepama, who told me to teach. Mm. And uh, I was very puzzled by that. I thought, what's she on about? It's impossible. But of course, she was right and I was wrong. What's your favorite Buddhist teaching? Um, it's one I wrestle with, which is echoed uh, many hundreds of years later by Martin Luther King Jr., where the Buddha said something like, um, Hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. That is an eternal law. 
I have a favorite Sutta too, a favorite passage yeah, if you'd like that as well. Yeah. Uh, my favorite Sutta is um, the Buddha saying, um, it's it's in two parts, uh, let go of that which is unskillful, like that which causes pain and harm. Let go of that which is unskillful. You can let go of the unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. Mm. And then he goes on to say, cultivate the good, the qualities like love and kindness and compassion. Cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. Um, and it's certainly that part. Like, if it were not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And mm. so it, it was so reassuring to me. I think he thinks I can do it. It's possible for all of us. What's something, Sharon, you wish for yourself? I would wish to continue to be uh, productive and active. I've written... Um, now 13 books, you know, and uh, I would hope to keep having something to say. Otherwise, it would be a much quieter life, really. Do you have a favorite prayer or saying or mantra? Uh, I just probably loving kindness phrases, you know, very simple. May you be safe or may we, may I be safe or whatever, uh, you know, formulation. Mm. Be safe, be happy, uh, be healthy, live with ease. Beautiful. What's been your most mystical experience? Um, different experiences of feeling uh, the centrality of that would produce a sense of self and other falling away in different forms. So in one way I describe it sometimes is um, this time my friend and I were uh, riding, I was riding the car, she was driving and um, we got caught in this terrible, horrible, awful traffic and complained bitterly about it the whole while. And then my friend said something like, well, we're the traffic too, you know. And something happened in that moment where that's why I mean by the centrality dropped away because I realized that before she said that, I'd been thinking, oh, it's almost like it's my road. Mm. You are interlopers in my way, slowing me down. But what if we're all traffic? Then that sense of it's mine and you're, you know, a problem when that fell away, we still had a problem, which was traffic, but it was a very different sense, you know, than that kind of separation. So however that happens for me, that would say that that's what it would be. What is a life of greatness to you? I think it's a life of service, but in, in the smallest of ways sometimes, like, or in the most concrete of ways, you know, helping somebody, I mean, a person that I, I've met um, through teaching, who might be one of the happiest people in terms of their work, their job, was somebody who had a job which sounded like a nightmare to me, where she was answering the phone and a customer complaint line. And and she said, she was like beaming. She said, I can't always help people, but I try, you know, to help them have a better day. I'm always honest. If I say I'll get back to you by two o'clock, I get back to you by two o'clock. And I listen and I always respect people and and the oddness of it was that I had just so recently to that, that workshop I was teaching been a complaining customer by somebody and somebody was so mean to me, you know. And I thought, boy, I mean, you know, that was a different experience mm. um, where I should have had you. And, and I thought, wow, you know, I, I can't imagine that as a child she longed for that job, you know, mm. but... Uh, she was using it in such a way that it was a really powerful spiritual experience. 
Sharon Salzberg, thank you for all the work that you do and for the beautiful conversation today. Thank you so much. It was great to see you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.